Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Danny Hill, the monk on a motorbike. Today my guest is Professor Dave Cliff. Dave is considered one of the leading authorities in the world on artificial intelligence. And in this episode he's talking about whether fears that AI will put us all out of a job or even worse, have any substance or whether it is in fact a force for good. Dave teaches computational science at Bristol University in England and has a very impressive CV, some of which he's outlined in a brief biog I asked him to do in the intro to this episode. I'll put a link to his Wikipedia page in the show notes on my website if you want to know more. This is something of a departure from my usual themes. Up till now I've featured stuff about what you might call spiritual practices for want of a better term. However, the theme's always been about how we generate intentional happiness, and part of this involves attending to our external world. Being mindful isn't just about sitting in meditation and training the mind, but also about the kind of work we do and whether we have sufficient income to thrive in our communities. How we interact with AI may have a major impact on our lives and well-being in the future. The idea for this episode started after I finished reading the book Homo Deus by thinker and historian Yuval Noah Harari, in which he paints quite a bleak picture of how AI, of, of AI and how it will affect our lives. Dave's an old friend of mine, so I asked him what he thought, and during the ensuing conversation I decided it was worth sharing as a podcast episode. I was intending this to be a short 30-45 to 45 minute interview, but it was so interesting we carried on for an hour and twenty. So please feel free to press pause, take a break and pick it up later. However, Dave is very considered, incredibly knowledgeable and articulate, and it's well worth listening through to the end. I've put show notes, links and other stuff on my website, www.monkonamotorbike.com. Enjoy. Okay. My name's Dave Cliff, and I'm a professor of computer science at University of Bristol. Uh, I've been at Bristol 15 years. Before that, I was a professor at Southampton University. And before that, I worked in industry for seven years. So I was a technology research scientist for Hewlett-Packard at their laboratories in Bristol. And while I was there, I invented some technology that was good at trading in financial markets. So I also worked briefly for Deutsche Bank in London, uh, working on automated foreign exchange trading. Uh, before that, I was a professor at the MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Artificial Intelligence Lab. And before that, I was at the University of Sussex. So my training was I, I did an undergraduate degree, a bachelor's in computer science, and then I did a master's and a PhD in artificial intelligence or cognitive science it was called um, kind of more about trying to understand intelligence in in animals in natural systems than trying to build artificially intelligent systems but if we understood animals better then we'd understand better how to build AI systems uh, I, uh, I I teach uh, general AI but really my specialism uh, in the last 15 years has been in financial markets so I, I, uh, 25 years ago, I wrote some software, which was the first one of the first two pieces of software to be demonstrated to be better than humans at trading. Um, but I, but it's not just trading. So I also, I've got six US patents for my automated dance music disc jockey that I built around about in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, I was enjoying uh being a, a house music dj and i and i knew enough ai to know that actually i could write some software that would do the djing jo job so that i could go and dance so yeah i've done that um i've i've uh i've worked as a government advisor uh on kind of ai and technology 
mainly for the government office for science. Um, and yeah, I just uh, I guess all my all my career has one way or another been to do with the AI. Oh, yeah. And I also, uh, in 2013, uh, the BBC broadcast a one-hour science documentary that I presented and had helped write. And that was called The Joy of Logic. And it still gets repeated every now and again. Uh, yeah. So that's me. Okay. All right, Dave, thank you. Anyway, so welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so yeah, this, so this is a conversation that started some time ago, and I'd just been reading Yuval Noah Harari's books, Homo Deus and Sapiens, and he had a rather interesting but quite gloomy outlook about AI, and many people seem to share that, that the, the, the worst case scenario is AI becomes sentient and kills us all off, but there was a more near future threat that many of our jobs are under threat, whether it's doctor, nurse, poet, artist, lawyer, and all those were mentioned, we're all going to be out of work because of AI and there were many other threats there. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Uh, very good question. Um, I think that if, you, if we consider the specific prof professions that you just named, uh, so I think that was doctor, nurse, poet, artist, and lawyer, I think the first four are safe from AI, and I can talk more about that later. Uh, the legal profession is interesting, so the job of actually being a lawyer, uh, I think it's going to take a long time before AI can do everything that a lawyer does, but the, the, there's a job within the legal profession of paralegal, which is kind of a bit like being a paramedic, you're kind of, you have some legal qualifications, some legal skills, but you're not a fully-fledged uh, a fully-fledged lawyer. And quite a lot of being a, a paralegal involves searching through documents, trying to find maybe emails that are relevant to a case or previous judgments that are relevant to a case or going through bank statements or whatever. And that is something which is relatively easy to mechanise. So different people have different definitions of what artificial intelligence is. But one fairly common definition is... A system is artificially intelligent if it's doing a job where if a human did that job you would say that human is in that human is intelligent because they're doing that job so certainly 50 years ago if you'd said okay I need someone to search through you know the this huge stack of emails and this huge stack of documents that's relevant to this legal case that would require someone skilled in doing that someone who was intelligent and now we can get machines to do that um, the reason why I think the, the the other four professions you named are safe, there, there are really two reasons. So you you named poet and artist, and I think actually I think that should have been poet and musician, from what I understood. Oh, okay. Uh, mm. So I think I I think p both poets and musicians are, are unlikely to be threatened by machines anytime soon because computational creativity is really, really in its infancy. People have been, I, I know people who've done research on trying to make machines creative and it's just really hard. And then nurses and doctors are classed broadly as you know, within the caring professions. And I think, I think one reason why I'm not so pessimistic about AI is that, especially in the caring professions, and I, I would class you know, also social care and being a teacher, or you know, a kindergarten person all the way up through to university level teaching, is that we humans are social animals. We're social apes. We we evolved, uh, and and became human 
in the context of being part of a, of a, of a social network and the, the need for human contact, the need for empathy, the need for understanding what it is to be human is so present in us that I think uh, the, it, it will be a very, very long time if, it's, if, it's, if it ever happens before machines can show human level or even levels of empathy or kind of sociality that are acceptable to humans. So I think, I think, if you if you if you see a human doing a job and they're doing a job which is kind of mechanistic, like sorting through a big pile of documents, then yes, it's reasonable to expect that computers can do that at some point in the future if they can't already now. But if it's trying to understand what it is to be human, or trying to be creative, or trying to uh, evoke an emotion through the you know a creative act, be it artistry in paint or artistry in music composition or or the playing of music, I think that's that's just a very long way off, and and I think there are reasons to doubt whether it's possible at all. I, th I think he quoted, I don't know what the phrase is, research or experiments where AI had created pieces of music, and it was given to audiences, and um, you know here here's one created by a human, and here's one created by a musician, mm -hmm. uh, by a piece of AI, and the AI came out better, people didn't know that it was AI and I think he said the same thing about um, poetry, I think it was haikus, they okay. got AIs to write haikus, something like that, it's a while since I've read this book and it came out just as good and I, and I think the last thing was a few people have said about doctors, you know, so much of it is about, um, let, let, let's stay with the creative bit, mm -hmm. so I, I don't know if you've heard of that research or whether that rise uh, or, um, well, I must admit, I haven't read the books. Uh, enough, yeah. So I can well imagine. So my understanding of haikus is it's a very constrained form of poetry. Mm. You know, it has to has to have a certain number of syllables, and they have to be arranged in a, in a certain way. And so, I think it's not impossible that you could get a computer to generate haikus. And then, it, then, you know, the 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 obvious example to appeal to is the old line about you know a, th a thousand monkeys bashing away on typewriters forever mm. you know eventually by chance you, you, you end up with complete works yeah. of Shakespeare um, you have to wait a very long time so you can imagine uh, someone writing a piece of software which um, puts out haikus and but has some constraints so it's not entirely random so the likelihood of getting something that's reasonably good is much greater because it's not just choosing random syllables or random words for each of the sil syllables that needs to be filled in a haiku similarly in music um, Recently, uh, within the last year or 18 months, you know how you can, when you l go to Google, the, uh, the search engine, when you go to their homepage, quite often they, well, every day they have a different picture on there, but every now and again they have like an animation or a piece of software that you can interact with. And I can't remember exactly when, but within the last uh, two years, definitely, they had a system which had been trained on the work of uh, the music of J.S. Bach. And... They've got this form of AI. There's a there's a a lot of the excitement about AI right now is because of a particular type of technology which is known as deep learning, deep learning neural networks. So they had a deep learning system, and they'd essentially, if I if I remember correctly, they'd fed it loads of examples of the work of J.S. Bark, and then the Google software, and you can you know, I'm sure you can find this if you search for it uh, on on the web on the web browser. It allowed you to enter some notes on the stave. And just just as a kind of very simple melody, and then you set some kind of dials as to how many parts you wanted 
how many different voices you wanted uh, this to harmonize your melody in the style of JS Bach. And then you just press go and it and it did it. Now, I'm not a skilled musician, but it sounded to me just like Bach. Uh, it sounded as pleasant and you know, no less pleasant than listening to Bach. So there you could say, well, okay, was the machine creative? And and then you immediately get into the kind of philosophical problem of, well, what do we mean by creativity? So if no one had ever created music like Bach before, and then Bach comes along and creates this particular form of music, then I think that's undeniably a creative act. But if you take a machine that's just been exposed to hundreds or thousands of pieces of Bach music and it finds that there are some statistical patterns which are common in Bach's compositions and then applies those statistical patterns to the music that you've typed into the, the Google web browser and comes up with something that sounds a bit like Bach I think it's plausible to argue that that's not really that's not really creative rather that's just a kind of a machine blindly applying a set of rules which it's gathered from statistical analysis of of some some form of art. It could be haiku, could be uh, could be music. There was um, there's been some excitement within within the AI field, and and also you know this has got press coverage. There's a system for uh, working with natural language, working with human languages. So in particular. Uh, most of the work I'm familiar with uh, works with the English language. So natural as opposed to computer language. Yeah, yeah, indeed. English, so yeah. yeah, that's just a kind of <coughs> technical term, yeah. meaning any human language is a, is a natural language. Mm. So there's this natural language processing system called GPT. Uh, I can't remember what it stands for. And uh, it can produce a you know, paragraphs of what looks like coherent text. Uh, and you know, people said, this is the end of authorship. This is the end so, of uh, journalism. So, right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you, you might say, okay, uh, give me three paragraphs on um, why dogs are better than cats as pets. You know, so so express some opinion, and in, and indeed it appears to do really well. I don't have the figures to hand, but in round terms, it's been trained on you know, as much text as the researchers who built it, as much text as they could find on the entire internet. So it's been exposed to billions of sentences of English, and. Because it has been exposed to so much English, it, it basically finds some statistical rules. This word often follows this word. This other word never follows this other word. And so using a purely kind of statistical model, almost like rolling dice, it can come up with paragraphs of what look like coherent text. But um, some researchers at, at Google, uh, a woman called Timnit Gebru and her colleagues, christened these systems stochastic parrots. So stochastic is the technical term for random. Um, yeah, we all know what a parrot does. You, know, you, you can teach a parrot a few phrases and it can re recite those phrases. But no one, I think, argues seriously that parrots have a deep understanding of the meaning of those phrases. It's just a set of words. So I think the thing that's missing in most AI at the moment, whether we're talking about creative AI that's making music and poetry or, or even things like GPT-3, which is just pouring out sentences or paragraphs of text that we would not normally think of as creative although you could argue I think that you know a journalist writing a story is engaging in a creative act um, so th yeah those um, those systems they give a superficial impression of intelligence but they don't have a deep understanding they don't know the semantics they don't know the meaning of what they're talking about 
or what they're writing about or what they're composing um so i think i think that 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 means that really at some meaningful level they are not creative they're not intelligent they're just fooling us into thinking that they're intelligent because they're doing something that superficially looks like it would require intelligence but underneath when you open up the box it's not manipulating meaning it's just applying a big set of statistical rules that it's no learned. critical thinking yeah that it's learned yeah. by looking at just to pick you up on, on that i'm interested about this this gp gpt GTT. so is is this is it accessing information let's say your dogs and cats example is it accessing information about dogs and cats and is then extrapolating about dogs and cats or is it just able to put sentences together about dogs and cats without even that what's the um so it, yeah my understanding is that it doesn't if if you if you give it something to do like write about dogs and cats it doesn't actively go off and search the internet and come back right. with content but it's been exposed previously to to unbelievably large amounts of text some of which includes the word dog some of which includes the word cat and cutting a long story short it can it can kind of extrapolate from the commonalities in the texts that it has seen on dogs and the text it has seen on cats to come up with something that looks like a new creation um, but but you know, the other thing is that if you then say well uh, how many wheels has a dog got you know a nonsensical question or you know how many how many uh, how many dogs have 12 heads it can't answer because it has no internal concept of dog it just knows that there is a word dog and that that word occurs frequently or less frequently with certain other words and so through this kind of sequence of clever statistical tricks you know it becomes a stochastic parrot it becomes something that can randomly generate some regurgitated text that looks plausibly like it was created by an intelligent language user but as soon as you push it and ask it you know, what it meant by what it wrote it it's incapable of answering do, do you do you think sometime in the future we'll be able to do more of that more of that intelligent accessing the information and well so yes um but it's hard so right now i mentioned earlier right now there's been a lot of excitement about artificial intelligence you know it, it, in the general media and a lot of that has come from the astonishing successes of this particular technique called deep learning and deep learning fundamentally draws inspiration from how real brains real you know, animal brains process information so we, we definitely haven't worked out everything there is to say about the human brain and the, the total mystery of, or, or rather it's a big scientific challenge to understand consciousness but in certain aspects of what brains do so vision or hearing we have a, a reasonable understanding of how brains work and fundamentally we know that brains are made of neurons so that's individual nerve cells and those individual neurons will receive some number of impulses from some number of other uh, neuron, typically neurons or, or perhaps actual sensory neurons you know, the, the light receptors in the eye or the frequency re uh, receptors in the ear a bunch of little electrical signals are fired from each neuron onto some number of other neurons each neuron receives some number of electrical signals and if it gets enough stimulus in a specific time window then it starts to fire outputs so you can conceive of a neuron mathematically as something that just kind of takes some set of inputs and does some kind of 
simple summation on them maybe so add them together and if that if the sum is greater than some value send an output and if not don't so that's that's the kind of very sketchy mathematical conception of what a neuron does you can then do some maths where you tie a, you know millions of these neuron you, where you tie millions of these neurons together and collectively they can compute extremely complicated or sophisticated mathematical functions so um, you know many people now have speech recognition you might have a voice based assistant in your phone or smart speakers you know things like uh, Alexa by Amazon or Siri by Apple the, the speech recognition in there huge advances have been made in speech recognition using this this statistical technique deep learning however deep learning has really only been the kind of hot topic for roughly a decade uh, and I've been an AI researcher now for 30 years um, and I remember when I first started doing AI research in the late 1980s people would you know even then it had a 30-year history people normally talk about you know the, the late 1950s as the real birth of artificial intelligence and there have been periods where people are very excited by AI and pe periods where people are frankly very disillusioned because it failed to deliver and within the within the field we talk about AI winters as periods when you know you can't get a job as an AI researcher and it's very hard to get research money to do to fund any advanced work in universities because the people that give out the funding have decided that basically AI made too many promises and and it's kind of not trusted as a technology and right now I think you know the last the last few years we've seen a definite uh, a definite AI summer you know the, the, my students go off and get uh, very attractive jobs with very attractive salaries uh, because they have qualifications in AI. There's a huge demand for AI. But most of it is driven by the huge successes of deep learning. And deep learning is fundamentally about discovering statistical patterns in data. It's So I am actually answering your question here, Dan. Um, <laughs> so... So deep learning fundamentally is not about manipulating or reasoning with meaning, the semantics. It's not about the semantics. It's about discovering statistical regularities in the data. Uh, previously, you know, over the kind of now 60 plus, you know, almost 70 year history of research in AI, there have been periods where people have, d have tried very hard to understand meaning and semantics and to manipulate meaning and semantics at the computational level but but there are some really big philosophical problems in that um, so you know which I would which I would be happy to talk about uh, so um, most famously there's yeah, a there, it, yeah. there's an example called the Chinese room and this this was dreamt up or yeah dreamt up and popularized by a philosopher called John Searle and he said okay imagine if I have a, um, a a big black box it's, it's really pretty big it's about the size of a shipping container and there is uh, a letterbox in in the shipping container and I can put in to the letterbox a, a sheet of paper with some English text written on it some English nat natural language and then I press a button and a piece of paper comes out and it's that piece of it's that English text translated into Chinese so the problem is called the Chinese room because this box is as big as a room and what it does is it translates from English into Chinese. Similarly, you can put some Chinese text in 
an English text comes out. And and this works for any any Chinese input that you give it, you get the English output, and any English input you give it, you get the Chinese output. So externally, we would say that is an example of an artificially intelligent system because it understands it understands English and Chinese so well that it can translate from English to Chinese and it can translate from Chinese to English. And then you know, the big reveal in Searle's example is when you open up the Chinese room, when you look inside the box and see what mechanism is, is happening, there's a human in there and the human is taking the input text and just looking it up and has a collection of um, of uh, of lookup tables of, of kind of if you see this symbol in Chinese then write this word in English no no definition of the meaning just a mapping from symbol Chinese characters to English characters or similarly if you see this word in English then you write down on the paper this Chinese symbol followed by this Chinese symbol followed by this Chinese symbol so there's no meaning in there at all however it has an, you know, an encyclopedic set of these lookup tables these this word translates to this word or this word translates to this word and so externally it looks like it's intelligent but as soon as you see what the mechanism is inside the box you realize that there's no understanding at all it has no it has no knowledge of the semantics of the meaning it's just a very clever and presumably quite fast way of going from one set of symbols to another set of symbols and Searle's Chinese room problem uh, I think caused a lot of AI researchers in the kind of 1970s and 1980s to really pause and take stock of whether the computer systems that they were building were actually intelligent or not you know, so, so and I think one of the reasons why I've always found working in AI really stimulating is because you immediately confront a bunch of philosophical problems what is intelligence what is understanding what is meaning and if a system merely appears to be intelligent because it's doing something that a human would need to be intelligent to do it's very tempting to say well okay therefore the computer is intelligent but but if we then open up the box if you know if we could if we can look inside and see that actually it's it's achieving that via a method which is obviously not what humans do then I think it becomes questionable whether it's genuinely intelligent or whether it's just giving the appearance of being intelligent. So, you know, and the other fairly standard example that gets wheeled out in these circumstances is the game of chess. So it used to be thought that you know, if you could build a machine that would beat a human at chess, that surely you were understanding something about intelligence. And then, you know, elementary computer programs, which were using methods that are clearly not what human chess players use, um, were built which were sufficiently fast that they could work through lots and lots of the consequences of any possible move at every possible stage in the game and they could hold all that in their head so to speak and then they could make the best move that was available to them at each point and so fairly quickly chess programs were able to beat average human players and then the big quest was okay well how about for a chess player for, sorry for a machine a chess machine to beat a human grandmaster and then you know and then how about to beat the the best chess player on the planet you know so famously Gary Kasparov was beaten by an IBM uh, chess playing machine called Big Blue 
uh, was it big blue or deep blue? Deep blue. Deep blue. blue. Yeah, yeah, sorry. One of the yeah. Two, yeah. Um, but yeah, w w that gives the impression that it might be intelligent. But when we open up the box, what we know is that what's going on inside the machine is nothing like what goes on inside the human, and the human is generally intelligent, whereas the machine is not. That machine can only play chess. If you tell tell that machine that the house is on fire, it sits there and tries to work out what's the next best chess move. It doesn't sit there and try. It doesn't run run for its yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's a kind of. It has maximally deep expertise in this tiny, tiny, tiny part of human existence, which is playing one specific board game, and it's very, very good at that. But it says nothing about intelligence. It tells us nothing about intelligence other than it provides an existence proof that those people who believed that getting a machine to beat a human grandmaster at chess would tell us something about intelligence, it just tells us that those people were wrong. And so um, coming back to Searle's uh, Chinese Room, a, a, a kind of response to that was, well, the problem is the symbols which the person inside the room is manipulating mean nothing to that human because they they are nothing but symbols they're just this set of this this arrangement of ink on the page in chinese maps to this arrangement of ink on the page in english and vice versa so then there was a, a kind of move within that ai to the phrase that got used was grounding the symbols trying to trying to make the symbols really mean something and then you get into the problem that a lot of AI certainly up until the the late 1980s early 1990s was trying to have a computer be intelligent but with that computer not attached not interacting with a real world it was you know you told it some facts and then you asked it some questions about its facts but it was metaphorically it was like having a, a brain in a vat in fact philosophers of AI wrote papers about brains in vats it, you know how how much can we learn about intelligence if all we have is is the thinking thing and none of what the thinking thing is connected to yeah the body yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah and th and then so so then there was this movement to try and work in so-called embodied ai where the ai system might have some sort of robot body um in order that it can actually interact with the world and and interact with other other entities and other objects so, so now for instance if it has um, a, a video camera attached the it, it can really experience the visual world as opposed to be told about the visual world in a series of symbols which are is what a computer program is um, and that then led to a bunch of uh, researchers and I, you know I was kind of involved in this in this field to to think really about what you know what does intelligence serve why don't why do why why are we intelligent why do organisms why do organisms have brains uh, and actually it's you know the the answer that a biologist would give to that is is quite vital it's about the maintenance of life or you know if you go for the richard dawkins selfish gene it's about surviving long enough to pass your genes on into viable offspring who can in turn pass their genes on to successive generations so the shorthand for this was that the reason why we have brains is for the four F's feeding, fighting, fleeing and reproduction and, uh, and, and that's why animals have brains right because, because you need to eat you need to defend yourself from attack you need to maybe run away if you can't defend yourself and you need to 
do the other F and pass your genes on. And so that then grounds our intelligence, our brains, in uh, the ecology of the environment that we're embedded in, that an animal is embedded in, and also the evolutionary history of the animal, because quite often aspects of the, the kind of architecture of the nervous system which plausibly constrain or limit the type of thinking that a particular brain is capable of or the type of cognition that a, t- a particular brain can engage in then you know it's it's a function of its evolutionary history it can't just do anything and it wasn't designed by a bunch of engineers it was arrived at by this very long laborious trial and error process so yeah there was there were you know ai kind of progressed in the direction of trying to understand intelligence from from the perspective of embodied evolved kind of ecologically grounded organisms and and trying to see intelligence as a a kind of holistic function so uh, and at roughly the same time in human psychology uh, people like Jeffrey Miller or Helena Cronin uh, became well known for advancing ideas of evolutionary psychology and trying to understand our our psychology as a function of the the kind of four or five hundred thousand year evolution that led you know humans to be what they are today uh, people started building robots that were like insects in order to try and better understand you know the argument was how can we understand human intelligence if we can't understand the intelligence of a bee say and bees are astonishing creatures you know they can navigate over kilometers find a food source get home navigating back correctly and then do a little waggle dance in the hive that tells the other bees the distance and direction and some some people say also the quality of the food and and that waggle dance is fundamentally symbolic computation there are aspects of the dance that represent information that's important to the bees so like the number of zigzags they do in the waggle and the angle that they dance at relative to um, straight up relative to vertical on the on the wall of the hive that they're doing the dance on these convey distance and direction information to their hive mates so one argument in ai is if we if we don't yet understand the neural basis of the waggle dance in bees or, or how bees navigate then how on earth how can we ever understand the neural basis the, the kind of fundamental biology of intelligence in humans because a human brain is way 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 bigger way more complicated it's probably the most complicated information processing device on the planet um but then you know in parallel yeah that that work pr- proceeded people were people were modeling evolution and using evolution to to kind of uh, using c- computational simulations of evolutionary processes to come up with new forms of uh, of AI system which had not been designed by a human but were the result of an evolutionary process at least in part to try and better understand how evolution shapes cognition but then uh, the mathematicians l- got lucky with deep learning and uh, deep learning has produced you know these astonishing successes, you know, huge advances in speech recognition, GPT-3 that appears to uh, write English text, the Google example that appears to compose music like Bach, the example you told me, uh, you know, the thing that um, the thing that can that composes haikus. I don't know that one, but I'd hazard a guess that if if the example you were talking about doesn't use deep learning, I bet someone else has done a deep learning sure, haiku yeah, generator. Yeah, yeah. But but those those systems, I think 
I mean, they do threaten some people's jobs, uh, but they they have no semantics. They have no meaning. They're not embodied. They're not embedded in a in a world in any meaningful sense. And for that reason, I don't think they'll ever be anything other than very very good at the one task that they've been trained to do, like the chess playing machines. Which you know, chess playing machines are not going to take over the world anytime soon. But when I started my PhD in AI in 1987, I remember. Uh, it must have been 1987 or 1988, hearing about this particular person called Ray Kurzweil, who had written articles about the singularity. And the singularity is the moment when AI becomes so all-powerful and so superior to humans that essentially we humans become enslaved by the AI. And then, you know, by process of extrapolation, it's argued that plausibly the AI will tire of us and extinguish us and, and then the AI you know, becomes the only sentient, intelligent form on the planet. And I can't remember exactly how long he said it would happen into the future back in the mid-80s, but I think he was saying it's plausibly going to happen in 20 or 30 years' yeah, time. This guy was an academic or a he, thinker? Um, or? He, he, had a, he, he, he had done research in AI, good research. Um, he had... If I remember correctly, he had produced a pro. He he'd kind of he he was university educated, but he then kind of formed an AI technology company, and they they produced some really useful AI technology by the standards of the day. Um, but yeah, essentially, thirty years ago, he was predicting that the singularity would occur roughly thirty years into the future, which means roughly now, and it's clearly not happened now. And now, I think, when you look at the people that write about the singularity, because because it, it's now become something of a kind of uh, a cottage industry, or you know, I guess if I was feeling unkind, I might describe it as a, a minor cult. You know, there are there are people that pronounce about the singularity and how we can protect against it and what we should do when it comes, and I think they're all wrong. They're all deluded. They all they all are investing their time and energy in discussing something that I don't think will ever happen, uh, or at least the current AI summer, the current amazing successes of deep learning tell us nothing about the likelihood of the singularity because because there's something fundamental in being embodied and being embedded and having an evolutionary history that means we humans are just astonishing. And in fact, you know, all other animals and many other plants, you know, um, my PhD was in understanding uh, vision in insects, and you know, so that's how I know a little bit about bees. And I think, I think, even our most advanced engineering artifacts you know, that humanity has ever produced—pick your example: the space shuttle, nuclear power stations, the internet, whatever—all of those things pale into insignificance when you look at just how astonishing, when viewed as machines organisms are you know insects mammals birds fish you choose but you know we are just amazing pieces of machinery and our artificial attempts at replicating those machines are they get the job done as engineering you know so i guess the other example would be flight you know so we have jumbo jets and we have helicopters and we have drones, you know, we have flying machines, but they're not autonomous in the way a bird is or a bat is and they can't land on a twig 
uh, and they don't, you know, they 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 can't uh, self-power themselves, and they can't self-replicate themselves. So we drew inspiration from natural flight to have artificial flight, but it's not like we've replaced birds. Um, we've 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 built things which use the general principles of aerodynamics, which apply to all physical objects. So they apply equally to birds and to aeroplanes or aircraft. Um, but our aircraft are. Uh, serve the specific human needs they don't replace the animals that inspired them and i think ai will serve particular human needs and for sure there will be some jobs which will be mechanized out of production in much the same way as you know in the in the 70s and 80s robot assembly technology changed factory floors so it used to be that very large numbers of human workers were needed to build a car on a production line and now the number is much smaller because we've got a lot of robot technology in there. So there are machines that assist the humans, but there are still humans on the production line because not everything is easily automated. So I think there will be some, you know, there will be some jobs where, regrettably, for the individuals who are employed in those jobs, one day they're going to come in and you know be told, frankly, we've got a machine that does that now. But then that's that's happened ever since the Industrial Revolution. You know, there there have been jobs that have been. You know, there used to be lots and lots of farriers putting horse putting shoes on horses. There used to be lots of people paid to clean up horse droppings from the street, and you know all that was um, done away with, or largely done away with, with the arrival of the internal combustion engine and the car. So, yes, AI technologies, machine learning technologies, will alter patterns of work, but will will we ever become slaves to the AI? Will the singularity ever occur? Not in the lifetime of my great grandchildren. I would say, and probably never. Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole Terminator Arnie thing is a bit, a bit unlikely. At the well, moment. well, well. That's that's an interesting one in in that there are really serious concerns about the use of AI, AI systems, on the battlefield. So the the phrase that gets used is killbot. You know, a robot with a weapon is something to be scared of. Um, and I, I mean societally scared of. You know, obviously, if you're on a battlefield and there's the opposing forces and they're coming at you with weapons, you're going to be scared because uh, that's the nature of being on a battlefield. But the idea of deploying those, deploying AI-enabled weaponry, I think should scare us, even if we're the people who are doing the deployment, because AI is fallible and it makes mistakes and if my AI program makes a mistake I just get a wrong number on the screen or um, but if an AI weapon makes a mistake you get dead people people who have been killed when they shouldn't have been uh, and so yeah there's um, there's a British uh, roboticist AI practitioner called Noel Sharkey uh, for many years he worked at uh, the University of Sheffield and he's been um, a, a world leader in trying to develop kind of an ethical code for the deployment of AI and machine learning in in military applications, and in particular, where you give autonomy to the robot. So, if if a robot's remote controlled, I mean, you know, at the moment, for well over a decade now, we've had drone strikes in overseas countries, which are directed by pilots who are sat in the homeland. So an awful lot of drone strikes which took place in Afghanistan or Iraq were piloted by US forces sat in Nevada 
I think I think there was a big operation center at Las Vegas, and essentially over the internet they're they're commanding the drone. But the important thing there is you still have a human who is responsible and who is trainable and who is accountable and who can explain why they did what they did. Now that's not to say that humans are perfect, but the problem with these AI systems, especially the systems that have just use clever statistics on lots of examples is when you ask them to explain why they did what they did no explanation is forthcoming you know these systems are almost entirely opaque you don't you know that gpt3 is really good at producing text you don't know how or, or really why you just know that you showed it lots of text and it got good at doing it so there's a there's a kind of subfield within ai research of explainable AI, trying to have an AI that can not only act in the way that we want it to act, but where it can explain and justify what it's doing. Because then you can you can place reasonable bounds on the likelihood of it doing something deeply undesirable. So in you know in much the same way as we take human drivers and we or rather we take tra- humans and we train them by putting them in driving lessons, and then we test them and we ask them questions, and then we say okay you've reached the required standard to be allowed to drive a car on your own on the roads. So the nice thing about that is if a human is involved in an accident on the assumption that they survive, then they can actually explain what they were doing and why they, you know, what happened. And so it's plausible to have explanations for what's going on and maybe to retrain someone if their driving behavior is undesirable in ways that it isn't possible with current AI. And so if you put unexplainable AI into a system that has autonomous control of whether it fires or not, and you put that on a battlefield, uh, you could yeah you could end up in some very horrible situations. So this was a very long answer to your question about the Terminator. Um, I mean the you know the in the movies the Terminator had human form and used English language. Uh, the the kind of systems we're we're talking about look like little tanks, uh, and they you know they are mobile on the battlefield and they might carry weapons. But the thing that is really worrying about them is that they are not explainable. Um, or So we don't know what the, the the failure modes, we don't know how they might go wrong until they go wrong. And that that is then very problematic, because if, if by going wrong they fire off lots of weapons and kill people, those people aren't going to come back, however so, sorry so, you feel. So, so the thought would be, if, if you have... AI weaponry with a human behind it. You have explainability, but I suppose your tab- and accountability. Your, your yeah. tabloid scenario would be the rogue state gets hold of something and doesn't care about the explainability and does unleashes it. Is that is that what you're saying? Oh, I, yeah, that would be one scenario. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm certainly not advocating for an increase in AI on the battlefield. Um, I mean, ideally, ideally, we wouldn't we wouldn't have. Yeah, in, in a truly ideal world, there would be no there would be no need for combat forces because everyone would love each other and hug each other. But unfortunately, <laughs> exactly. human humankind just doesn't seem well disposed to that. So, I think nations will always need armies, and you know, will need armed forces, armies and and air, air forces and navies. Um, but I think we just need to worry. We need to be hyper vigilant and hyper cautious about the introduction of automation in in a process that involves killing people fundamentally or, or you know doing damage on some enemy and yeah any the worry with any technology is that it for you know you develop it for your country to protect itself but then it falls into hands either of an enemy state or of you know rogue actors like terrorists who 
are out to do no good to you. So you, you know you might you might invest in some research thinking it's going to protect you, and then it ends up being used against you. Something that's sort of coming through for me with a lot of this is you know, this lack of critical thinking and um, lack of empathy is about the fact that a lot of what drives humans, as you say, there's these very fundamental four Fs, and that produces to, I'm going to really oversimplify things mm. here, I'm afraid, so correct me if I am, but a lot of that, uh, humans have emotions, and a lot of our intelligence is driven by emotion, and a lot of that is driven by these, you know, these fundamental four Fs. Are, is AI ever going to be capable of having some sort of emotional state, and, and what would that mean if you could? Very, very good question. Again, it, it takes us straight into philosophy. Like, what do we mean by what, what, what do we mean by emotion? What is mm, it to have sure. an emotion? So, you know, I I know what it is to be hungry, or I know what it is to be angry, or I know what it is to be sad, or afraid, or in love. But if we simply build a human-shaped robot. Uh, and that robot is you know the same size as me if it, if inside it's 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 wires and wheels and and cogs and motors does it really know hunger in the same way that i know hunger uh, does it know cold in the same way that i know cold uh, and and i think you know the really big ones like happiness or love or affection or fear or sadness are are still being teased out by philosophers um, and so I don't know that a machine would ever have those things or if a machine did have those those emotions it would be specific to the experience of that class of machine so I believe you know I, I have a pet dog I believe my pet dog is happy but I think dog happiness is probably different from human happiness and there will be times when the dog is sad and I think we're using basically the same word to talk about similar but non-identical states so then you know do i ever really understand my dog's sadness does my dog ever really understand my happiness probably not because i think you have to i think there's an argument to be made that you have to be part of the same class of entity part of the same type of organism to really understand what it is to be one of those organisms so again this is this again i think is why the people the people that get excited by the single singularity idea they need to read some biology, really. I think you know they yeah, they don't sure, realise yeah. that there's so much more to being human than being human shaped, and there's so much more to being human, to having human level intelligence than there is to passing an exam, right? So, yeah, I I think I mean some some people argue that if you you know if you have a computer and it's running a lot of programs, it's running a lot of apps, and it starts to slow down, that that's that's like the human that's like the computer equivalent of of having an emotion of being you know too busy or or being stressed but i think that's a very it's not a very informative comparison to make it's kind of superficial so yeah i i th i think you know having having played with these ideas in my head for kind of 30ish years now the more i know about ai and cogn cognitive science the more the more it just makes me realise that we haven't even started to scratch the surface of what it is to be human, and 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 a lot of that is what it is to be an animal. Uh, you know, we we are. I think in the. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert in religion, but um, the sort of Judeo-Christian, the Abrahamic faiths, set humanity separate from the animals. You know, 
the the kind of Garden of Eden story that I grew up. You know, I grew up in a Christian country, so I got fed the Bible at school. And it's you know Adam and Eve are put on the earth, and then all the animals and the plants are put there by God for man's you know for humankind's pleasure. Man shall have dominion over the yeah 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 yeah. And it's just it's just wrong, right? Um, we're just another animal. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think if if we understand ourselves in animalistic terms, if we treat humans as if you know as 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 a biological entity, humankind as a evolved an, an evolved entity, an evolved species that has a certain kind of evolutionary history and has a certain ecological niche that, or set of ecological niches that it can inhabit, then then we learn a lot about what technology will find forever difficult to to replicate because there's something fundamentally animal about us. But uh, we are, you know, gifted with the, this astonishing information processing capacity, and and not only that, but you know, we have language and we have creativity, and and we have altruism, and these are things that that have, you know, vexed that, that biologists find have, have struggled to account for in any animal species. So altruism. You know, there are some genetic explanations, there are evolutionary explanations. So you know, I'm kind to my sister because she has, on average, half the same genes as me. And so there's, there's, um, from a selfish gene perspective, there's value in being kind to your immediate blood relatives. There's slightly less value, but still some value, being kind to your cousins, uh, because they, you know, they share some genetic genetic material, but not the same proportion, you know, not such a high proportion. And then, you know, if someone the argument goes if someone shares no genetic material with you um then you know then from a game theory perspective from a kind of what's in it for me perspective being kind to someone else bears uh bears little return bears little reward however we humans i think are can be altruistic to total strangers in virtue of the fact that they're another human being like there's a humanity um and all of this is lost on or rather, none of this gets much much mention in a lot of AI writing. A lot of AI writing is still bound up with this kind of sense that somehow it's all about doing stuff that you need to study for in school and pass exams on. And I think actually the focus on that has mean that we've probably missed the point. No, I, I think there's a reasonable argument for saying that's a, a societal problem that we focus on what we do in school rather than... Oh, hell yeah, yeah. You know, the emotional content. You know, we've yeah. had this discussion before no, about mindfulness for children, giving their emotional tools to grow up with. It's, it's an issue that we have, and we're just taking this to the AI field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I think maybe things have got better in the last decade or two. Uh, I think you know, mental health is now recognised as something that kids need help with understanding and managing and and dealing with and taking appropriate precautions for so yeah uh, mindfulness in schools sounds like a very good thing to me i mean certainly when i was at school in the in the 70s and early 80s uh i don't think mental health got any mention at all it was you know kind of mental health desert but I th- but then i think probably we're seeing those moves in education at least in part as a response to a crisis because you know be, 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 because the world is becoming more stressful for young people and and 
in the absence of any kind of explicit tuition or guidance on mental health, they're, they're running into mental health difficulties, getting mentally ill much more. Uh, the prevalence seems to be going up. You know, I've worked in universities for 20 odd years and I think we're seeing mental health problems in our students increasing you know and some people will say well they you know they were always there but now they're just more welcome to talk about it i'm not sure that's entirely true i think i think the modern education system certainly in the uk and in quite a few other but not all other um advanced economies is just driven by this focus on results and 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 then you know the results that are measured are exam success you know how 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 easily can you parrot out in 30, in 60 minutes or or 180 minutes you know everything that you've learnt in the last however long 3 years 5 years and and there seem to be no metrics for happiness uh, or contentment or well-roundedness so Altruism. yeah 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 so you know you'll see i i live in bristol and bristol has quite a few private schools which advertise you know that I'm every 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 week I pass a billboard or, or a bus goes past me that has an advert for one private school or another and they all seem to be talking about exam success uh, and, and as if you know and as if or, or you know very many of them will talk about you know how many people get into Oxbridge uh, and you know I've got lots of friends that have either studied at Oxford or Cambridge or now work at Oxford or Cambridge but I definitely don't think that's the if that's the only metric that you're judging a school by then frankly you're not spending your money very well at all and and I wonder how happy the you know how happy kids are that go to a system where you know Oxbridge entrance is is seen as the primary marker of success of the education system I'd rather I'd rather I'd rather our education system could. Well, I mean, this is going to sound wildly idealistic, and I'm not qualified to. I'm not qualified to comment on this. <laughs> I'm only it. here to Go talk on. about AI. Well, I think. I think. Well, again, you know, so AI has been spoken about as some kind of salvation technology for education, and you know, if we have more technology in education, things will be better. And various governments come in, and I mean, I, I think political interference in the education system, you know, from from kindergarten to higher education to universities too often it's motivated by I mean I don't have a very high opinion of most politicians I think they're venal creatures that just care about being elected and so very often they institute policies that impose change upon education systems that are still recovering from the previous change that was imposed by the previous round of uh, educationally minded uh, politicians and the thing that often seems I mean the current or the recent government seems to have been driven by some sort of 19 some reminiscence of 1950s education so you know, my my kids get taught what a fronted adverb is I, I have no idea what a fronted adverb is I seem to have actually lived a reasonably successful life with no knowledge of what a fronted adverb is but for my kids to pass their exams they have to be able to tell someone what a fronted adverb is. I presume because an education minister learnt that in the 1950s and having been taught it in the 1950s, decided that 
it was a shock that children were no longer being taught these things. I don't, I mean, I am, I am talking out of my depth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an expert in these things, but I wonder whether the world would be a better place if we did more longitudinal studies instead of getting 16-year-olds to pass exams and then 18-year-olds to pass exams. We, we judge an education system by how many people live happy and fulfilled lives rather than how many people pass exams. But I think what's really interesting hearing this as well is the start of this educational conversation was about the problem with AI thought is the same problem that we apply to education. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'm sort of thinking when you have a level of intelligence that humans have, that comes with issues. It's a very it's so sophisticated. We end a lot of us end up with emotional issues, mental health issues. So if you got an AI system that was intelligent as a human being mm. and it's been designed along the lines that we've just talked about that we don't think are very healthy, then you are also going to end up with intelligent machines with mental health issues. You know, <laughs> yeah. Marvin the well, paranoid yeah. android, it's, you know, um, a depressed AI because it, all it's been taught is results and mathematical algorithms rather than how to be happy and mindful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's it's, a fantasy it's as, singularity. Yeah, 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 I was say, yeah it's, it's as plausible a, as... No, I, I think if yeah, if if you want to, I think the singularity people should answer that point. Okay, sure. so I don't I don't believe that the singularity is ever going to be a, a threat to worry about. So I think probably I can dodge that point. But I think if you are going to argue that eventually machines will have this kind of superhuman level of general intelligence, not specific, not just playing chess or just writing haiku, but you know any anything they turn their hands to they, they exceed humans in their capacity for dealing with then almost definitely yeah you will have a system that is so complicated so complex that it will have something that for it is a correlate of what for for us we think of as emotions and mental state and happiness and yeah so i think you know maybe the singularity will be evidenced by this superhuman intelligence taking over the world or maybe this superhuman intelligence will curl up in the corner and cry because it realises <laughs> that the world is not a pleasant place and it wishes it had never been brought into existence at which point we'll have to develop antidepressant or mental health coping techniques for, for our robot overlords so yeah. that's my vision of the future <laughs> last singularity type question is uh, you probably changed I, I remember you finishing your phd years ago and it was when the singularity stuff was just coming out and i was vaguely hearing about it and i remember saying to you dave should we be afraid of this ai stuff and you said yes i think we should that was a long long time did ago. i really yeah uh, have you changed okay. your mind on that i'm, I'm assuming uh, yes well i'm I, i'm not afraid of the singularity happening any time in the next century um but any fears around AI? I'm well, just flagging that. Well, I think. Well, I think any. I think. I think it would be reckless to say no. There's nothing to be scared about at all. Uh, I mean, I'd, yeah, I've already said. I'd, you know, I'd, I worry about its use in, um, in military applications. I worry. I, I think I worry about the use of unexplainable AI in almost any sphere of human human activity as in what you were saying earlier but it, it, it being able to explain it yeah 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 so um i wouldn't want to be diagnosed by an automated you know i wouldn't want to have a medical diagnosis announced for me where that medical diagnosis was not 
explainable by the automated system that had come up with it. Um, I wouldn't like social care decisions to be made or policy decisions to be made or my kids to be educated by AI systems that that are not fully understood and uh, that have not been kind of validated or kind of quality assured in some sense. But but um, increasingly you're seeing these te technologies be deployed in, in circumstances where they're not quality assured, where they're not fully understood, but they're cheap. So quite a lot of the drivers for automation are we can get a machine to do this. Previously it was done by a human. The human cost a lot of money and the machine is cheap. So we put the machine in and okay, it's not as good as a human and okay, it can't explain itself, but let's hope for the best. So I've kind of, you know, in, in, in my career, I, I've kind of sort of done that I've, or helped that happen in the sense that 25 years ago, I wrote some software that does what a human trader does in a financial market. And in the last 15 years or so, that kind of software which I kind I sort of pioneered, that kind of software has largely seen human traders removed from financial markets and replaced by machines. Certainly at the point of execution, you know, you, the stock exchange used to be large numbers of people shouting at each other, you know, trying to get a good price for a deal, whether they were buying or selling, and then agreeing to enter into a transaction with a counterparty. And now all that shouting still takes place, but it's computers to computer. They're shouting over a communications network. There's nothing to hear. It's just pulses of light on a on a fiber, um, and and then every now and again you get you know, situations where the market goes kind of into some well the the, the slang phrase that's used for this is flash crash. You, you know, so so it goes into this sudden freefall, and very often that's because human traders would notice the prices going mad and would have some sense of normality. Yeah, you know, this is abnormal, and would have some sense of common sense. They would kind of think. No, I'm not. I'm not going to trade right now because those prices are just nuts. Um, and so humans would essentially kind of withdraw if ever things looked like the market was going crazy. And that act of withdrawing gave everyone the chance to draw breath and maybe only take a few seconds and then think, oh, okay, you know, let's 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 be sensible here. But the machines were not historically programmed to have common sense or to have a sense of normality or to so, have anxiety yeah or yeah indeed any any, yeah, yeah, exactly, any yeah, of that yeah. and so yeah the famously uh, in may 2010 may the 6th 2010 there was this major event where 880 billion dollars uh disappeared uh it, uh, 880 billion dollars yeah 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 uh disappeared from the total value of the uh, stocks and shares market in the in North America, in the space of about fifteen minutes, uh, and yeah, so the, the, it became known as the flash crash, um, and it was you know at the height of the drop in prices, some shares that would normally be trading for like a hundred dollars, hundred and fifty dollars, either fell to one penny, or went to one hundred thousand dollars. You know, prices were just prices were just insane um, but the machines had just been programmed to look at what prices were available and make a decision on the basis of what prices were currently available so they, they didn't think that's 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 nuts that Hewlett-Packard is trading for one cent or that's nuts that Procter & Procter and Gamble are, have suddenly jumped to $100,000 per share they just said okay those are the prices I'll carry on trading I'll trade at those prices so 
Yeah, so I think I, I, I worry about AI where it's deployed unthinkingly and deployed mainly as a cost saver. And then you get you either get bad outcomes, like the flash crash in financial markets, or that's at the kind of systemic level, that's a bad outcome. Or you get... You oh, know, was that money recovered, by the way? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a long story. So so it happened at roughly 2.30, 2.40 in the afternoon. And it was the biggest one-day fall in uh, in stock prices in the US in history, in absolute terms. However, it was then followed over the next 45 minutes by the biggest one-day rise. <laughs> <laughs> so, so by the time the market closed, uh, it was down a bit, <clears throat> but it was kind of down on the trend uh, for that day. So it... So it didn't make the news. Was damage done by those? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Some covers. people, some people lost a lot of money. Right. Uh, some people made a lot of money. Uh, some of the trades were subsequently cancelled because it was recognised that you know it was just a moment of collective market failure slash madness. But some, some, some of the trades kind of rippled through. So when you see stock markets going mad, some people will start to think, well, okay, there's instability in the US stock market so therefore I'm going to sell dollars and buy Swiss francs say so in fact this this extreme event in the stock market affected the f foreign exchange markets as well and people lost money or, or gained money in FX that was not recoverable um, there was more collateral damage yeah yeah, yeah yeah and okay, but yeah. but I mean the really big concern with the flash crash is if it had happened a couple of hours later if it happened so it happened round about 230 if it, if it had happened at 430 then the the that's the time at which the New York Stock Exchange shuts f for business. So you know, that's market close, and you can't you can't just say, oh, the market's just lost eight hundred eighty billion dollars. We'll keep going a bit longer. The market would have closed, and so then it would have been headline news. It would have been the biggest one day crash in history, and then you know the world turns, the sun would rise on the stock markets in Tokyo and Hong Kong, and seeing the worst crash in history in America that would have instituted a massive sell-off in in the Far East markets and uh, and then again the world mm, would turn gotcha, yeah, and yeah, as the yeah. sun rose over Europe you'd have seen you know the American markets and then the Far East markets just smoldering wreckage and so everyone would have sold off in Europe and this this was actually at the time when the sovereign debt crisis in uh, in Eurozone countries was becoming clear you know the, the kind of the extent to which governments were on the risk of you know, kind of going bankrupt so in fact the day before there had been riots in Athens because the Greek sovereign debt crisis was reaching a crunch point um, so yeah I mean if, if it ha happened if that event the flash crash had happened a mere two hours later probably it would have instituted mm, gotcha, yeah, yeah. A, a global financial Carnage, catastrophe yeah, yeah. yeah and it, it was just luck that it didn't mm. yeah so sort of moving on a little bit Maybe a bit more rosy, you know. You can, can you, can we use AI for big questions that seem to be supposedly insurmountable? You know, how do you deal with climate change? How do you, how do you deal with a pandemic? Is it is there is there uses in there? Um, the, the, uh, I, I would say yes, but only a qualified yes. So, so f you know, famously, when uh, the pandemic hit Britain, uh, a bunch of people had computer models that allowed us to kind of run through scenarios and then say okay well you know how about if we lock down a week later and then you run the computer simulation and it would tell you how many people 
you know, it would give estimates of how many people might die and how, how full the hospitals would get or how long it would be before hospitals were fully occupied, all those kind of things. Is that AI? Well, it's kind of a computer model. Uh, I guess it's making predictions on the basis of its knowledge. And I guess, you know, if you, if you apply Searle's Chinese room argument, if you close the black box and look at it, you could say, well, it's kind of doing something that an intelligent person would have done. So I think it's arguable as to whether it's actually hardcore AI, kind of strong AI or not. Um, but the technique is known as an agent-based model. So you basically, it's, it's like The Sims. You simulate <laughs> lots of little people yeah. uh, and you do it again and again and again and it gives you some sense of what's happening. So so for the pandemic, I would say yes. Uh, those kind of technologies, AI, complex systems, agent-based models, are, are plausibly helpful in predicting outcomes and evaluating policies. But the, the key thing is that AI is is just a tool that can offer policy makers or decision makers some information that might affect their policies or their decisions. So it's not actually in control of the pandemic. And yeah, you know, I think I think part of the problem might well start again. I think part of the thing that we need to learn from the way both the UK and other countries have reacted to the pandemic is that sometimes political considerations, sometimes politicians don't pay as much attention to the science as they like to claim. And uh, and I think, you know, we were talking about education just now, that happens in education as well. There can be really sound research that demonstrates that some things do work and some things don't work in education, but the politicians are, are paying more attention to a what will be an attractive headline in a populist newspaper tomorrow rather than what's what's really there for the good of the kids i do think uh i mean to you know if we look at what's happening in medicine something really astonishing happened recently and so here's a here's a good thing for ai um is there's a british company called deepmind um founded by uh Great Br name. british people yeah uh, so demis hasabis uh, is a british guy who founded it he studied in London. Uh, he formed the company in London, and about I can't remember when, but um, a few years ago, it was bought by Google. But but essentially, Google has ownership of it, but it remains a London-based operation. And with Google came a lot of money, so they were able to hire a lot more people and do some really astonishing bits of AI. Uh, so the first thing they did, they got fam well, the first thing they got famous for was building an AI system that won the board game Go. Uh, so there's this um, Japanese, Japanese, Japanese board game, game yeah. yeah, which is, for technical reasons, much, much more challenging for a machine to be good at than chess. And um, people had tried to build Go-playing machines for a long time, and they had never been very good. And the deep in deep mind, I think, is a play to the deep in deep learning. You know, the deep mind, most of the work I've seen them produce has, one way or another, involved deep learning. So they they got very famous for using deep learning in uh, in a system called AlphaGo, which which won uh, won Go international competitions and then beat a Go grandmaster. Um, interestingly, it seems to have learnt a set of Go strategies which humans had never really conceived of before. And so, when you're the 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 human Go players when they play the machine, they say it's playing unlike any human that they've ever played, but it beats them. Um, so I guess. The weird thing is now that maybe human Go players might start to emulate the machine, uh, 
let's see whether that happens. But the reason why I'm talking about DeepMind is very recently they wrote they wrote some software which um, basically predicts how proteins fold. So a protein is a string of chemical elements called amino acids and the amino acids have atoms or molecules poking out of them at different angles and some of those will be positively charged and some are negatively charged and then positive attracts negative, negative attracts positive, positive rejects positive and negative rejects negative. So you take this thing that's initially like a long thin string but then when you let it go it kind of it, it folds up it, it kind of uh, because of these attractive forces and repelling forces within the molecule and it's it's been a famously hard problem in science to go from the string of amino acids which we can recover fairly easily using conventional methods to knowing exactly what the shape of the protein is but the shape is everything in the protein because for things like antibodies or um, well for almost all functions that proteins perform in the body they perform that function in virtue of their shape and obviously also to some extent the particular sequence of amino acids that that, that they're built from and uh, cutting a long story short very recently DeepMind basically said here's some software which super accurately predicts the folding for basically any protein that you care and here you can have it for free uh, and it would not it would not surprise me. I don't know whether it, that would be eligible for a Nobel Prize, but I think as an act of kind of intellectual altruism, of kind of just gi giving yeah, yeah. giving yeah. away something that is likely to be of immense value, I think it's a fantastic thing for them to have done. And they did it, you know, essentially using the same AI technology, an evolution of the AI technology that had won a board game. Now, winning the board game, people would go, meh, you know, so what? So we've got once once... Once chess was thought of as a challenge, now it wasn't. Then Go was thought of as a challenge, now it wasn't. But actually the technology and the experience they gained from working there allowed them to take the advanced things to the point where now they've predicted folding in you know, all, all proteins that we care about or you know, a very large class of proteins. So, so yeah, good stuff can come out of it. Um, but now we're talking really about a machine that does a particular job you know it's like a chess playing robot or it's like a photocopier it's not it's not an artificial generally intelligent singularity threatening entity it's no, just it's, it's, it's not just a thing that's very to its yeah. mates and look after a family and indeed play the yeah, piano yeah. At the end of the day so it? yeah they're definitely i mean there, there's room there, there are, are grounds for hope um and it's ai a lot of technologies which were developed in ai are now commonplace you know it's entirely routine to see someone talking to their, you know, their voice assistant on the phone, to talking to Siri or, or to Alexa. Um, that's, you know, that has it, its uses. Um, the protein folding work, I think, is going to be, you know, revolution or transformational in in a lot of biotech. So that's really good stuff. So yeah, it's not all bad. I was going to say, I mean, if you 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 work in the field for a reason. Are you largely positive about AI? Do you, do you largely think it's great stuff for? that's a tricky one I think I think I think I so I, I think what keeps me in this line of work is that there is for as long as I've been doing it there you, you never have to wait too long before some interesting new development so it's not at all static you know what the tools and techniques that i'm using or that i'm teaching my students 
this year, probably you know the vast majority of them are have been developed within the last definitely within the last 20 years and sometimes within the last 10 and you know for some lectures I give we couldn't give that lecture three years ago because the technology we're talking about now wasn't invented then um, and so I think you know speaking purely personally what attracts me to the field is that it presents a kind of continuous stream of problems which are interesting to work on and then every now and again someone you know, rarely me but um, very often someone else comes up with a solution that's reasonably interesting and you know everyone kind of starts looking at that so intellectually it's it's very stimulating but whether it's necessarily you know in absolute terms either good or bad I don't think you can really argue because you're you're you know if I was a blacksmith I could be making you know I could be enjoying working with metal I could be making scalpels which surgeons use to heal people or it could be making machetes, which murderers use to kill people. And um, that's not to say that I don't have ethical responsibilities, at, you know, given my position as an AI researcher, but there's a sense in which, to some extent, the whether something is good or bad is about how other people use it, how rather, applied, rather yeah. than about necessarily, you know, at the point that it's produced. I'm, I kind of think of myself as a metal worker. Um, so I, I could, you know... I wouldn't want to do it, but you know, I have the skills, which mean that I could I could use AI for bad. I could I could I could develop. I could if I was forced to. It's it's not impossible that I could develop AI for a morally bad application area, but I wouldn't. I would never choose to do that. I would have to be forced, you know, potentially at gunpoint, uh, to do that kind of thing. Um, and I like yeah, I, I like to. I like to work on applications where there is some sense of public good, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's too simplistic to say AI is either a force for good or, or a force, force for bad. bad. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Dave, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up there, and there's partly because there is so much other stuff I'd like to pull out of that, which we've talked about before, with okay. the ethics and flash crashes and stuff. And and if you're up for it, I think I'd like to do a, a few more. Uh-huh. But I'll wrap this one up for the minute. Okay. Thank okay. you so much. That, that was, was good amazing. Fun. Okay. That was, that was, Thanks that so was much. So Dan. interesting. And let's pick it up again with some of the other subjects and yeah, absolutely. Maybe drill in a bit deeper another time if you're good with that. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Thanks, Dan.